humans have been enjoying wine for 8,000 years or more, and there's never been entry exams, literacy tests, diplomas, or membership fees. You can go as far or deep as you want, or just take it all in and find your happy place. That being said, we like to spend our week looking for things that we can share with you in this space and time. We'll give you food for thought, ideas for adventures, and most weeks, tips, pointers, and insights that you can use the minute the program ends. Wine has always united us. It still does. And we've never needed that more. So climb aboard. There is no time like the present to get your adventure started. So here's your host, the doctor of deliciousness, the chairman of the Bordeaux, the top gun of wine fun, David Wilson. Hello and welcome to Grape Encounters. I am your vino therapist, David Wilson, and we have much to talk about today. You know, last week we embarked on a flavorful journey diving headfirst into the very thought-provoking world of taste, particularly that of our beloved vino. Our mission was to solve the mystery of why your once-cherished wines may have lost their allure and to shed light on the myriad factors, wine-related or not, that shape your tasting experience. That includes both wine and food. We distilled the complex concept of taste into five simple yet potential elements, each capable of dramatically swaying your wine enjoyment. Yet, as the curtain fell on our discussion last week, there were still unexplored corners and unfinished thoughts yearning for attention. So today, I'm going to get at the heart of the matter, and I think you'll walk away with a completely different perspective on wine, plus some amazing tips that you can begin implementing today. They will be game changers for you, I promise, and it's so darn easy. But that's not all. We're also going to meander through a few other tantalizing topics that promise to pique your curiosity. To that end, I think it's time to dust off once again my single favorite recipe for a wine-based summer cooler that will have you rethinking that margarita that you've been drinking. You see, every few years when the sun blazes unrelentingly, I break my own rule and reveal my secret cure for summertime meltdown madness. My top secret wine margarita recipe. Okay. Okay, so if you've been a longtime listener of Grape Encounters, you know it's not top secret. I pull it out every couple of years, and I just had to pull it out today because, honestly, it is so bloody hot here in Italy. I can't stand it. There's just no relief. And you would think living in a building that's 800 years old with walls that are like three or four feet thick, that it would be sufficiently insulated and it wouldn't get hot inside, but that ain't the truth. So I spent the evening last night just looking everywhere for the perfect little portable air conditioner. Of course, I ended up buying it on Amazon, but I spent so much time looking for it that I missed the deadline to get it the next day. And now the earliest I can get it is next Wednesday, and I really, really hope you feel sorry for me. By the way, if you've been into Mexican restaurants that don't have a hard liquor license and have decided more than once to give their wine margaritas a go, only to be wildly disappointed, I'm going to tell you, please, trust me on this one. I've made it for some of the most renowned wine and spirits critics in America. They go bonkers for it. You're going to go bonkers for it, too. And I think it only has four ingredients. So... 
As I said, trust me on this one. So stay tuned. We'll talk about that in a second. Anyway, let's continue where we left off from last week. Toward the end of the show, I gave you a hypothetical situation where a server brings several little ramekins to your table, compliments of the chef. And these ramekins contain various ingredients that represent the five components of taste. Instead of the chef's signature appetizer sampler platter, you've been given sugar, salt, lemon slices, vinegar, and a glutamate compound that brings out the umami characteristic in food. At first, it might seem like an insult, but each of these things have enormous power to make or break a meal. But to understand the how and why, it's critical to understand the gastronomical revolution that's only just beginning, and I am very, very committed to being a part of it. It's a dramatic departure from centuries of conventional wisdom and is based upon the notion that we are doing a very poor job of understanding and catering to individual taste perception, a radical change in food and wine thought that's shaking the very foundations of our culinary cosmos. In the grand scheme of things, we are really just beginning to understand that our flavor experiences aren't universal, but instead are as unique as our DNA. What titillates my taste buds might not even tickle yours. The bitter bite that makes me cringe might be the same one that makes you crave more. How on earth could anyone not love the original ranch dressing or a perfectly cooked lobster tail or even one of those teeny little McDonald's cheeseburgers? Look, if you won't deny it, then I won't deny it. I know you go over there when nobody's looking and some of you guys actually order three or four of those, making darn certain that you destroy all the evidence before you return home. At some point that evening, your partner's gonna say, you don't seem very hungry today, to which you will offer some kind of lame response like, I don't know, I think I think my stomach's a little off today. I give those three examples because people go crazy for them, but there are plenty who find some universally beloved foods revolting. And understanding why there are huge disparities between those who love or hate the same things is finally getting the attention it deserves. Challenging the long-held belief of a standard palate, an imaginary average taster around which our dining and wine pairing rituals have been designed. It's like trying to tailor a shirt for a ghost. Turns out the tapestry of taste is far more intricate and spellbinding than we ever imagined. Our perception of flavors, it appears, is as unique as our fingerprints. Emerging research suggests that our genetic makeup yields a significant influence over our taste experience, turning a simple meal into a personalized flavor festival or a daunting taste test. Consider the child who artfully avoids broccoli or Brussels sprouts at the dinner table. These tiny tastemakers, often labeled picky eaters, might actually be tasting these foods differently due to their unique genetic composition. Variations in something called the TAS2R38 gene, for instance, can make certain veggies taste exceptionally bitter to some, which explains why they might shun them with a grimace. But this gastronomic revelation isn't just a fascinating scientific discovery, it's transforming our understanding and approach to food and wine. It's a call for empathy and acceptance in our own dining experiences, acknowledging that 
each person's taste journey is uniquely their own. It's a reminder that even our simplest human experiences, like savoring a meal, are beautifully complex and profoundly personal. In this era of abundance, our society offers us a dizzying array of choices, from types of barbecue sauce to models of cars, even potential partners on dating sites. And this I know from personal experience. Anyway, it's a smorgasbord of options. However, it does bring with it an interesting conundrum. The more choices we have, the more we've come to expect. Yet when it comes to stepping off the beaten path, and exploring the unknown, we often hesitate. Take the world of wine, for instance. There are thousands upon thousands of varietals and brands out there, each with its own unique bouquet of flavors. But despite this vast selection, many of us stick to a familiar repertoire of eight or nine tried-and-true varietals that have long dominated the wine scene. The other tens of thousands of wines, mostly produced by smaller boutique wineries, remain relatively obscure. They're hidden gems waiting to be discovered. Now, these wineries often lack the resources to compete against the behemoth producers for coveted shelf space. So, as a result, they remain silent, their exquisite offerings largely unknown to the wider public. Now, this isn't necessarily a bad thing, because many of these boutique wineries revel in their niche status. They take pride in crafting refined wines in smaller quantities, catering to a dedicated clientele who appreciates their unique offerings. However, for those of us sipping on our Chardonnays, Cabernet Sauvignons, Merlots, and Pinot Noirs, we're often blissfully unaware of the vast world of wine that lies beyond. Unless we muster the curiosity and energy to seek out these lesser-known varietals, we may never realize just how much we're missing. And don't expect the big producers to help broaden our horizons. They're unlikely to uproot acres of their profitable vineyard land to plant lesser-known but potentially delightful varietals. Such a gamble could cost them millions, if not billions, without any guarantee of securing precious self-space or consumer interests. So here's to the diversity of our palates and the exciting new era of personalized dining experiences. Yes, it may require some effort and willingness to step outside our comfort zone, but the reward could be a whole new world of taste experiences just waiting to be savored and enjoyed. All right, stay with me. We'll be back in just a second to dig in to the nitty gritty details. For the past year and a half, I've been surrounded by awesome Italian wines. But if you want to experience Italy's finest, you don't even have to leave your neighborhood, thanks to Total Wine and More. Just arriving straight from Tuscany, they've got the new St. Giorgio wines from the remarkable Castellani family. For 120 years, the Castellanis have been dedicated to the craft of traditional Italian winemaking, producing top-quality wines at incredible values, like the Vino Nobile with a 96-point rating. It does not disappoint. And with bottles starting at just $9.99 and more varietals with near-perfect scores, we can all enjoy Italy's best for much less. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, always find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine & More. And drink responsibly. Be 21. At every family gathering, my brother Steve and I each bring several bottles of wines and try to one-up each other. I bring wines from all over. Steve only brings wines from California's Mendocino wine country, where he's lived for decades. And even though there are hundreds of great wineries there he can choose from, he mostly brings wines from the Graziano family of wines. 
Now you'd think you'd see a lot of duplicates from past gatherings since most producers only make 6 to 12 wines, but Graziano has 5 brands that make literally dozens, upwards of 30 mostly Italian varietals, and all rock stars. Made by the real rock star, Greg Graziano. You can hear my recent interview with Greg at GrapeEncounters.com, and you can find Graziano wines all over America, or buy them online at GrazianoFamilyOfWines.com. I've never confessed how much I love Graziano wines to my brother, and uh, let's keep it that way. For the past year and a half, I've been surrounded by awesome Italian wines. But if you want to experience Italy's finest, you don't even have to leave your neighborhood, thanks to Total Wine & More. Just arriving straight from Tuscany, they've got the new St. Giorgio wines from the remarkable Castellani family. For 120 years, the Castellanis have been dedicated to the craft of traditional Italian winemaking, producing top-quality wines at incredible values, like the Vino Nobile with a 96-point rating. It does not disappoint. And with bottles starting at just $9.99 and more varietals with near-perfect scores, we can all enjoy Italy's best for much less. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, always find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine & More. And drink responsibly. Be 21. In life as in wine, there's a certain irony to accusing others of the very vices we secretly harbor ourselves. For those of us who've made a livelihood out of swirling, sniffing, and sipping, it's a familiar predicament. We've journeyed through vineyards, tasted across terroirs, and soaked up the stories behind each bottle. Yet when it comes to sharing our wisdom, we often retreat to the safety of the known, the comfortable. Amidst the vast bouquet of experiences, certain wines, adventures, and encounters inevitably rise to the top of our recommendations. Well, of course, because there are tried and true favorites. They're the wines we've come to know intimately, the flavors that feel like home to me. However, here lies the rub. By offering up our personal favorites, we risk prescribing our palate to others. Instead of arming wine enthusiasts with a list of our beloved bottles, wouldn't we serve them better by equipping them with the knowledge and tools to discover their own favorites, to navigate the ever-changing tides of taste, and tailor their wine experiences to their unique preferences. My aspiration for you is not just to enjoy the occasional winning wine experience, but to relish every single one. A success rate of 7 out of 10 simply won't cut it. 6 out of 10? That's an outright Venus catastrophe. Which brings me to the esteemed master of wine, Tim Hanai. Now, I've mentioned Tim here before, and a lot in the last couple of weeks, with good reason. Tim's groundbreaking work on wine and food pairing goes beyond anything I've ever encountered, illuminating the subject with clarity, insight, and a dash of wit. Several years ago, Tim penned a thought-provoking piece, Wine, Food, and the Fertile Imagination of Experts. It's a veritable treasure trove of insights that challenge conventional wisdom and beckon us to venture beyond our comfort zones. In his subhead to the story, Tim writes, It is time to radically address the role of enjoying wine and food together. Things are completely out of control, and the misinformation, false premises, and misunderstandings 
are at an all-time high. At the beginning of his story, Tim talks about an expert thread that is asking for recommendations for Peking duck. And so I guess all of these experts weighed in, and here are the answers. It's really interesting. Well, we'll talk about it when I'm finished reading it. Anyway, they say Riesling, a Sauvignon Blanc, or Chateauneuf du Pop, Oregon Pinot Noir, 100% Pinot Meunier, Champagne, Alsace Blends, a big old Pride Mountain Cabernet, Dolcetto, and ripe vintages of Rosso di Montalcino, Sangiovese, Australian Sparkling Cabernet, Gewürztraminer, Dry Rosé, especially ones based upon Rhone Red varieties like Grenache and Syrah, or Italian varieties like <sighs> Barbera and Sangiovese, a good Portuguese wine from Douro. I'm sure it went on from there. What's the point? Well, the answer is, yeah. What is the point? I mean, you're listing so many different wines that are so completely different. If I was a reader, I'd just walk away scratching my head. So Tim goes on to say, holy moly, basically everyone just conjures up the dishes, conjures up the metaphorical match, and then goes to the mental Rolodex of wines they love in their head and come up with a match. The process is not based on any reality, just our fertile imagination and personal wine favorites. Note there is nothing wrong with this. Just what the hell is a poor consumer supposed to do with this information? Yes, indeed. What is the poor consumer to do? Well, Tim answers his own question. He says, you can bet that all contributors would defend their choices, and you can bet that if it's a wine you love, it will be great with a Peking duck. And if it's not a great match, a dash of soy sauce, which is erroneously referred to as a wine enemy, and a tiny squeeze of lemon, for those highly sensitive to bitterness, will set the dish right with any of the wines recommended. I get two takeaways from this. The first is, if you love a wine, no matter what you pair it with, the wine will probably be delicious. Because we convince ourselves to like a wine in any set of circumstances if we, in fact, like the wine solo. But the second thing is that it's actually very easy to manipulate wine and manipulate food and have a great experience. I mean, obviously, you want to start with wines that are credible, wines that are well-made, but even wines that are not perfect have hope. As long as you get it in your noodle that there are a handful of things, five things, that mostly impact the enjoyment you're going to get out of wine, it's those five components of flavor, and you understand that you can use those to tweak your wine or tweak your dinner, then you're going to be just fine. Being here in Italy, there's not a single restaurant really that I have been into that puts salt on the table. And even though Italians, like the French, are supposed to be culinary experts, it's something that I really don't agree with because I know from experience and experience not as somebody who loves a lot of salt, but somebody who doesn't love a lot of salt, that there are still those occasions where salt can be a game changer. You know, the one place that I always notice it is when I'm making a stew or a stir fry or something that relies heavily on salt. The first time you taste the liquid in the pot after it's been simmering for a while, you can find yourself scratching your head and saying, oh my gosh, this has absolutely no flavor. And yet you look into the pot and you've got all of these vegetables and this deep broth and, you know, meat that you've seared and it, it, you've done everything right. And yet it still doesn't taste anywhere close to perfect. And yet a few dashes of salt 
and it's an absolute game changer. The same is true with pasta sauces, except this time it's not salt, but it's sugar. And even if people tell you that this is not true, I'm going to tell you that they're, they're probably lying to you. And it's as simple as this. Most people in America, I believe, put sugar in their pasta sauce. Maybe it's just a little, maybe it's a lot, but it really depends on the ripeness of the tomatoes. The truth of the matter is that our tomatoes here in the U.S. are nothing like the tomatoes in Italy. And so I can understand not sweetening sauce in Italy, but in the U.S. with tomatoes that have been left to ripen on a cargo ship and they didn't ripen very well and they certainly don't have any taste, that sugar is everything. The sugar, the salt, the vinegar, these basic flavor components can all be adjusted in one way or another and it will completely change the dish that you're having. And so it's so important for you to understand that when you're sitting down at a table and you're having a less than wonderful experience with the steak that you bought and you paid a lot of money for, maybe it's one of those 40 or $50 steaks, and the wine that you're pairing it with, it might just be that a little sprinkle of salt can be a total game changer. And instead of going home and saying, ah, that was a bad experience, the wine was so-so, the steak was ho-hum, one tiny little dash is all that it takes to get things in balance. The devil is in the details, and it's the small things that really can make all the difference. You know, we put all of our emphasis on the food, it's the steak, it's the bird on the table, it's the lobster tail, and the wine. You know, we spend 40, 50, 100, $200 for a bottle of wine, and we forget that it's the smallest things that make the greatest difference. And a metaphor I think that most can understand would be to go out on a fancy occasion and making sure that you get your makeup right. I mean, think about makeup for a second. A tiny little bit of makeup, more than you could even detect sitting in your hand, can be the difference between looking incredible and looking just like your everyday normal self. Anybody that's into makeup will tell you that makeup is absolutely everything, and without it, you've got nothing. Well, maybe that's a little bit superficial, but I'll explain just how that relates to your next food and wine experience when we return right after this. In Greek mythology, we learn the mysterious connection between walnuts and wine. When Dionysus, the god of wine, fell in love with Princess Caria of Laconia, her sisters tried to prevent the romance, so Dionysus turned them into rocks. He also turned his beloved Caria into a walnut tree. She was, after all, a hard nut to crack. At mmorganics.com in Paso Robles, California, Walnuts and Wine is the ultimate love story. You'll flip over their 100% organic port-style dessert wines and organic heirloom walnut products, including sprouted snacking walnuts in five awesome flavors, irresistible raw organic walnut butter, free trade chocolate-covered walnuts, and for bakers, MM Organics produces 100% gluten-free walnut flour, estate walnut oil, and of course, their crazy delicious raw walnuts. Get all their products online at mmorganics.com. That's mmorganics.com. At Bar Dog, we believe that every dog deserves a life of unconditional love. That's why we've teamed up with Pet Finder Foundation to establish the Bar Dog Operations Grant 
money from this grant goes to rescue shelters across North America and helps save animals awaiting their forever homes. Visit bardogwine.com to find a bottle near you and help Bardog give back. Bardog. Wine for humans. Love for dogs. Live the life you imagine. No words better express the key to a fulfilling and joyful existence. But nothing prevents us from realizing our dreams more than the fear of red tape. That's why millions of Americans of Italian descent never take even the first step down the pathway to Italian citizenship. If these words ring true for you, then it's time to discover ICA, Italian Citizenship Assistance. ICA's team of Italian citizenship experts will obtain all necessary documents and make easy work of the red tape that stands between you and an Italian passport. You could soon be enjoying the many privileges of citizenship, like high-quality health care, low-cost education, and the ability to live and work in Italy and every other EU country. You can do this quickly, economically, painlessly. Learn how now and confirm your eligibility at italiancitizenshipassistance.com. Your passport to your Italian passport. We're back with more Grape Encounters. Did you know that there are approximately 600 grapes in every glass of wine and about 3,000 in every bottle? And remember that breakfast cereal commercial that claimed there were two scoops of raisins in every package of their Bran Flakes product? It's a good thing most people don't drink wine for breakfast because the potential to have more than your fair daily share of grapes is definitely there. Thank goodness farmers grow more grapes than any other fruit. Aren't grapes groovy? Listen, I'm not going to apologize for making the comparison between makeup and the five components of flavor because I actually think it's a great metaphor because those five components can really be next to nothing if you hold them in the palm of your hand, but in reality, they can make the biggest difference. If you don't believe me, then just think about the last time you oversalted something. I can live with undersalted, oversalted, makes you just want to gag. And sometimes it's just a half a teaspoon because there is a tipping point, let's say, where too much is just a little bit. But anyway, the five components of flavor that we've been talking about, and listen, this is not a new thing. It's been around forever except for the umami component. But I think that we've put way too much emphasis on flavor from the standpoint of what it reminds us of, black cherries or cassis or saddle leather, all of these other things, and not realizing that these flavors themselves, they're so minute and so infinitesimal, but they can make such a huge difference. And we're talking about sweet, salty, sour, bitter, and umami. And if you can find ways to adjust any of those components, then you can have great control, not only over your food, but also over your wine as well. The thing that I really have learned in recent years is to not be afraid to tinker with both the wine and the food and to realize that there's lots of ways to make adjustments. And as you look from culture to culture, you'll see 
where those adjustments are readily available on the table. I mentioned earlier that the Italians, they don't like salt and pepper on the table, but then again, they already have salt and pepper on the table because a lot of the restaurants that you would go into will have Parmesan cheese, which basically is salt. As a matter of fact, I often use Parmesan cheese instead of salt. It works well. It tastes delicious. And there it is in Italy sitting right on the table, although you will probably get chastised if you put it on certain foods. But I say after a year and a half of living in Italy, I don't care. I've been scolded so many times for not following the Italian food rules that I'm at a point where I don't care. I don't care. I do cause a diversion, though, before I use any of these things. As far as pepper is concerned, they don't put a pepper shaker on the table, but they have usually a little jar, and in the jar is going to be chopped up little red peppers. And usually they're not overly hot, but sometimes they can be incredibly hot. So you just have to test the waters before you put it all over your food. But there you have it, right? They will also have vinegar on the table, usually balsamic, but it doesn't necessarily need to be. But there are three things right there that can be used to adjust the overall flavor that's going into your mouth. In this particular case, you're putting it onto your food. But some of the stuff that will adjust your components of taste can go in the wine as well. And it saddens me that we tend to, in this culture, as a matter of fact, in most cultures, look down on that. But I will say what I've said many times, that why should you suffer through a bottle of wine when you can actually fix it? And sugar is one of those ways that you can fix it. A little bit of sugar will cause taste sensations to literally explode in a wine. And even just the tiniest bit of sugar can make the wine much more fruit forward. And I would say, do it, experiment with it. Don't get caught. And don't tell people that you heard it from me, okay? But I've done it more times than you can possibly believe. And I'm going to say this about that. It's really a case of the sugar causing a chemical reaction that I always equate to putting miracle Grow on your lawn, that a little sugar comes in contact with the wine and it really causes latent flavors to come forward. And so the sensation of sweetness will be much more than the actual sweetness that you added. I have been told, and I mentioned this last week by many people now, but the first person who ever mentioned it to me was Michael Mondavi, that he has been known to squeeze lemons into a white wine because he felt that the acid was really not cutting it for him. And so he asks for a couple of lemon wedges. I don't think you even need one lemon wedge, just a tiny bit of a squeeze, but you can definitely do this. Now, another thing that you can add and it was on my metaphorical tray of appetizers that I talked about last week. It's not one of the tastes, but it does impact the taste, and that is water. And I encourage you, if you open up a bottle of wine and it's too high in alcohol for you, just less than a half a teaspoon of water in a standard wine glass is all you need to lower that alcohol down to a threshold that keeps it from being oppressive and not delicious on your tongue. And it really works incredibly well. 
I was talking also about how the Italians will put peppers and Parmesan cheese and sometimes other things like vinegars on the table. A lot of cultures do this. And again, they're tinkering with those uh, flavor components. If you don't believe me, think about guacamole at a Mexican restaurant. It has a lot of those types of flavors or characteristics that will cause the food to taste somewhat differently. They've also got the salsa on the table. You see the same thing in Thai restaurants, in Chinese restaurants. There are so many cultures that do modify and adjust flavor in this way. And you can think of lots of different examples for yourself, but just to kind of run down it very quickly, let's just look real fast at the impact here because we don't have a lot of time in this segment and I got to get onto my wine margarita. But when it comes to sweet, okay, for you dessert devotees, pairing wine with your favorite sugary treat can definitely elevate the experience to a whole new level. Dessert wines are an obvious choice. They harmonize beautifully with cakes, sweet pies, spiced muffins, even pancakes draped in syrupy sauces. The trick is to ensure that the wine isn't sweeter than the dessert itself or the flavor might dwindle. You can also pair with sweet brute champagne. Its balance of sweetness and acidity pairs great with fruit cookies, creamy ice cream, nutty meringues, uh, dark chocolate even. Let's get into salty. It's probably the most important if you ask me. Pairing salty fare with wine can enhance the body of the wine while toning down the bitterness and acidity. It can also bring out the wine's fruity undertones and temper any harsh astringency. Salty cheeses like Gruyere, Parmesan make an elegant match with a highly acidic wine. God, do I like Parmesan cheese more than ever right now. I just mentioned it a minute ago. But where I live, you can get a block of Parmesan cheese that's almost like a brick. And it's six bucks. It's so beautiful. Okay, how about those sour notes? Acidity in food can definitely boost the body, the sweetness, and the fruitiness of wine while reducing its own sourness. So foods with high acidity can balance a tart wine and amplify its fruity notes. However, pair it with a low-acid wine, and the wine may seem flat and uninspiring. Let's move on to bitter. Uh, bitterness in food can amplify the same quality in wine. So when both have acceptable bitterness levels, they can enhance each other, though this can be subjective and it may not appeal to you. So just keep that in mind. And then the final flavor component that we want to talk about is also one of the most elusive, which is umami. And when I talk about umami, I like to think about MSG, even though people have a bad idea about MSG. And there was a lot of scuttlebutt going around a long time ago that it was very cancerous. And I don't think it's illegal anymore. And I think that has blown away in the wind. I can't be sure. But anyway, umami is what gives that, that lush, sort of meaty flavor to everything. It can influence how we perceive a wine's sweetness. It's hard to detect on its own, but umami-rich foods like aged Parmesan cheese, smoked seafood, pair really well with wine and create a really harmonious balance of flavors. There, there's so much that we could talk about here, but that will have to do it for now on this subject. we got to take a break, and next I'm going to come back, and I'm going to give you one of the best recipes for no it is the best recipe what am i talking about the best recipe for wine margaritas that you have ever tasted 
happens. You know, grab a pencil and a piece of paper or a pen or whatever it is, or just put it in your cell phone and I'll be right back. At MM Organics, we're surrounded by health nuts. That's because we're obsessed with lowering blood pressure, cholesterol, and the risk of cancer. We want to make weight loss easier and help you strengthen everything from your heart to your teeth, nails, and hair. Full disclosure, those health nuts are actually dry-farmed heirloom certified organic raw walnuts. Rich with essential vitamins and nutrients, they're vastly superior to other nuts. Imagine, walnuts can actually lower stress and boost your brain power. No wonder MM Organics customers are so darn smart. MMOrganics.com is where you'll find our uniquely irresistible raw walnuts, walnut butter, oil and flour, sprouted flavored walnuts, and decadent fair trade chocolate covered walnuts, which pair beautifully with our legendary two horse port style wine. MMOrganics.com eating any other nuts is just plain nuts. The only thing that Mendocino County winemaker Greg Graziano can't tell you about wine is how many different choices he makes. It's somewhere between dozens and cowabunga. Artisans like Greg don't count, they create. Did Da Vinci or Michelangelo take inventory? Let's just say that Italians like Greg can easily get carried away, especially when it comes to food and wine. Great wine is in Greg's DNA. His immigrant grandparents started making Mendocino wines in the early 20s, and despite being the head honcho of the much-beloved Graziano family of wines, Greg is just a humble, lovable guy. When you play in the dirt all day, you can't help but be down to earth. Ask your wine cellar for Graziano wines, or just visit GrazianoFamilyOfWines.com. They've got five different brands. Why? Well, because Italians tend to have big families. Life is just more fun with a Graziano at your table. For the past year and a half, I've been surrounded by awesome Italian wines. But if you want to experience Italy's finest, you don't even have to leave your neighborhood, thanks to Total Wine and More. Just arriving straight from Tuscany, they've got the new St. Giorgio wines from the remarkable Castellani family. For 120 years, the Castellanis have been dedicated to the craft of traditional Italian winemaking, producing top quality wines at incredible values, like the Vino Nobile with a 96 point rating. It does not disappoint. And with bottles starting at just $9.99 and more varietals with near perfect scores, we can all enjoy Italy's best for much less. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, always find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine and More. And drink responsibly. Be 21. All right, back with Grape Encounters Radio and time for a whole lot of fun because I get to share with you something that I try to only share, I don't know, about every three years because I, I don't want to be a broken record. But uh, it is my recipe for one of the most delicious wine cocktails imaginable. And there are so many wine cocktails out there, but this is an old standby favorite cocktail for most people, I would think. But anytime anybody ever attempts to do it with wine, it seems to just fall flat on its face. 
And, you know, I have ordered this in restaurants, Mexican restaurants, always. And they're just terrible most of the time. I'm talking about margaritas. And there are lots and lots of Mexican restaurants that don't have a full liquor license. They don't have a license for hard alcohol. And so they try to make margaritas out of wine. But I shouldn't really say that they try to make margaritas out of wine because most of the time it's just a margarita out of a box or a bottle. I've had some good ones. I can tell you that. But mostly they've been terrible. And several years ago, I found myself thinking, there's got to be a way to make something that tastes halfway decent. And I swear, I tried so many different combinations and ideas. And I even came to the point when I finally said, I don't even care if it tastes like a margarita. I just want to make something that tastes good. I was trying all these different wine varietals. And then I came upon a bottle of Chardonnay that I had in the house that wasn't particularly good. At least, I don't think it was very good. It was, however, oak barrel aged. And it turns out, my friends, that is what made the difference. And I played with Chardonnays of all different calibers, some that were a little pricier than others. And in fact, the better made Chardonnays did a better job of emulating a margarita. And I will also tell you, that the woodier the Chardonnay is, the more oak on that. So those Chardonnays that are almost intolerable because they have too much oak, they work great in a wine margarita. So here's the really crazy part about it is when you add the other ingredients, which are just a few things, it really transforms that Chardonnay. And I honestly will tell you that I like my wine margarita better than most margaritas that you would get at a really good Mexican restaurant where they make it there, right? Or any good bar for that matter. So here's what's in it. The first ingredient is also not an ingredient that you typically see in a margarita, although it's part of the margarita mix, perhaps, and that is canned lemonade. Now, when I say canned lemonade, I'm talking about those cans that aren't cans. They're cardboard on the outside and they've got a metal ring on the top and the bottom of them. And they're in the frozen food section of your grocery store. If it's a good lemonade, and most of those actually are, then it will work very well. So you start with that. If you're going to do a large batch, and I'm just going to assume that you're going to do enough for at least eight people, okay? You will need at least two to three cans of the lemonade, and you can use it to taste, but I'd say just go for the three cans, and then you want to add at least two bottles of Chardonnay, and you could do three as well. I, I would just say go two and a half uh, cans and two and a half bottles, and then you cut, can mess with it to get your flavor exactly right, but you put uh, all of those things in a pitcher. You need a dozen limes, a dozen nice limes, and you can just slice them in half or slice them in quarters. Quarters is probably a little bit better. Squeeze them by hand really hard and then drop the entire lime into your pitcher. I'm imagining that you're using a pitcher. I'll also suggest that if you can get some lime leaves when you buy the limes, not all stores leave the leaves on the limes, but if you can get a few and muddle them, that is to say to crush them up, and put it into the container, that's a very good idea. 
And so you could actually stop right there, just add a whole lot of ice and let it get nice and cold. But I suggest adding triple sec. And since you've got to two, two to three bottles of wine in there and two to three cans of the lemonade, triple sec, you want to do at least a half a bottle, a half of a 750 milliliter bottle of triple sec. And that'll dial in the margarita taste perfectly. But the other thing that I've added, which is not a margarita thing, but why it works so well, I do not know. And it's a splash of amaretto, a nice, healthy splash of amaretto. So I think what's happening here is the oak is emulating the dark, smoky flavor that you find in a lot of tequilas, obviously in the dark tequilas, and it just plain works. And you don't need to spend a lot of money on the Chardonnay. I would say that if you can find an oak Chardonnay, even if it's not great, but you can get one for 10 or $12, you're spending plenty. That's all you need. Uh, try those other additions, the Amaretto, the Triple Sec for sure. And you know what? You've got it made. Now, I want to just really quickly tell you about something that happened the other day. I was sitting in a little outdoor cafe bar in Italy. And there was a woman there who usually drinks wine, but this time she's drinking a glass of white wine and then they bring her out something that's bubbly. And I said, what are you doing? You're drinking Prosecco and wine? And she said, no, it's wine and seven up. And I'm thinking, that's a new one on me. I never even tried that. And I often have mixed white wines and bubbly wines with the fruit juices and things, but 7-Up, I never tried it. She gave me a sip. It was so delicious. And it reminds me to tell you that especially with white wines, but red wines as well, don't be afraid to mix wines with other cool things. That's the end of my shift today, gang. But I had fun with you today. We'll be back here same time next week for another barrel of fun. <laughs>